Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. And welcome to Precept Responsibly. Our, uh, for our episode tonight, uh, we have Jimmy Pruitt from the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. Um, and an interesting conversation, which we hope we'll all find engaging. But as always, as we start the night, uh, we need to tell the listeners uh, what we're going to be drinking for tonight's uh, discussion. And I have, uh, Jason, you're going to like this, Tito's with Diet Mountain Dew mixed in it. Um, so I have a Tito's and Diet Mountain Dew. Uh, Jason, wow. what, are you, what are you drinking? And uh, then we'll turn it over to Dr. Pruitt. Dave Hughes, I cannot believe you took Mountain Dew and mixed it with something. It's not good enough straight up. There's always ways to improve, Jason. I tell myself that every day. There's always ways to improve. Well, since we are uh, rapidly approaching Halloween, I decided to uh, pop open Stone Brewing's uh, Pumpkin Nitro Stout uh, out of a can. The the pop of that nitro sounds really great. Uh, you know, really getting in that Halloween spirit, so I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? Uh, what are you drinking? I'm forced to make this very boring. I just finished a water with some BCAAs in uh, and some creatine in a glass. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Post-workout drink. I love it. Absolutely. No judgment over here. Uh, Got to have lots of great vitamins. <laughs> All right. Let's let's get into Let's get into the content. Jimmy, uh, thanks for being here. Can you give us, our listeners, a sense of your background, training, years of precepting, um, overall? Uh, tell us about yourself. Perfect. Yeah. So, guys, thank you guys for have, having me on. And I guess start off. I'm a I'm a big big town kid from Orlando, Florida, and traditionally I grew up as an athlete. I was a football player and got into pharmacy when a chemistry professor asked me what's my backup plan to the NFL, and I told her, well. I, I may look into a few things and decided I want to be a pharmacist and got lucky and went to did my uh, pharmacy school and uh, undergrad I played football at Presbyterian College, went on to do my PGY1 at Advent Health Orlando. It was formerly called Florida Hospital Orlando, then went on to my dream program at Grady in downtown Atlanta and just really enjoyed that. I, I joke around, I tell people I, I had the, one of the best residency experiences in the world when I, when I went there and after that, I took a short trip to Augusta University, which was a pretty short drive away, and I would drive back to Grady working PRN there, and ended up about two years ago now at MUSC working in the ER, and it's been my it's been my dream, and I, I tell people every day I wake up and do the thing that I told myself I was going to do at 15 years old, so uh, super excited to continue to be uh, energetic about this, to be in a position, and been precepting now for, I think this will be four years now. Uh, so really excited about this and education, as you guys probably know, is one of the things that I really enjoy. So really excited for the work that you guys have been doing and excited to have a good conversation today. Yeah, Jimmy, and I, uh, I got to say the fun. I'm a big fan of your your podcast yourself, um, Pharmacy Pearl. So I, really happy to have you uh, on today's episode. And although, you know, the years uh, you you have a, a number of years under your belt, I'm, I'm really excited. You're our first emergency department pharmacist we've brought on. I think formally trained, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason. Um, but uh, today's topic is really going to focus on teaching during medical emergencies. And, you know, I, I really think it is a challenge. And I, I really owe a lot of respect to yourself and the emergency department of how you do this. And 
I'm hoping to give our listeners a really good uh, episode on on how to do this in the emergency department and doing it in a more acute uh, environment. So uh, I guess the first question to dive right in, what's your approach to teaching during a medical emergency? Can you can you walk us through how you do this in the emergency department when when time is of the essence? Perfect. I think it's what, again, as you mentioned, this is really a challenging situation teaching doing medical emergencies. But I think one of the things that I, I've tried to really uh, make a key, a cornerstone from, for teaching in the ER is this approach I call teaching out loud. Um, that's been something that I it really helped me. And what, what, it, what it means by that is by I take an approach where I'm able to talk to my, my residents beforehand, or my, my learners beforehand, and really say my entire thought process of what I'm thinking of when a patient comes in. And I try to get really deep into, into that. And I'm thinking about where is my equipment? The smallest things like where is my, what is my, where's my syringe? Where's the, what type of needle will I use? What medic, where's the medications exactly? Uh, when, I, when I go into the Omni cell, I walk myself through what buttons will I push? What alerts will come up? And I go through, through great detail to to really think about this because these are the things that freak people out when it comes time for a medical emergency. So as I'm doing these things, I'm talking out loud. And then I like to say my, my plan, my pharmacotherapy plan based off the information that I have out loud. And what I've noticed is twofold. My residents and learners, they get to understand what I'm going to do and not be surprised. But I've also found that my physician colleagues, nursing colleagues, they actually appreciate it as well because they, they, then they just, psychologically do the thing that I'm already asking them to do, whether it's something as simple as um, just, I'm going to want to use this medication for RSI, things of that nature. So I, I can dive deeper into that, but th that's really just my overall thought process of how I go about teaching out loud. And this is one of the ways that I'm able to guide my residents while I'm actually doing things. And I can try to balance learning versus patient care. I love the idea of like using your out loud speak to um, implant ideas in your team's head without having to physically be like, I'm going to recommend you do this, this, and this. It's just kind of said out loud some by somebody. So Jimmy, that's, that's a great, um, that's a great technique for your team, um, but also for your learners. I, I wonder like before you even approach this situation, um, do you let learners know like, Hey, when this emergency happens, like, don't run in like here's like some expectations for you up front. Uh, I specifically think about like maybe some of our ICU colleagues or our floor colleagues um, that like it's not as common for us to have that kind of like rapid emergency it may happen periodically. But like the, the resident or the student comes in and they're like, yeah, I, I really want to be engaged in this. Do you do some pre-talk to like get them set up for what to expect, et cetera? Yeah. And what I try to do is especially if I have a student or learner that's on my rotation, um, this happens frequently. And then if we have on-call residents that's responding to medical emergencies, I try to let them know that, hey, for this one here, I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to walk you through this one. And I try to early on kind of set the preference where I don't want you to have to worry about doing something. And that's what I've, I found over the years is that in the early stages of the rotation and even of the residency year for my second years, they get very conscious of the expectations of the team on them. So rapidly, I try to, disengage that fear and disengage that. And I say, Hey, I'm going to do all this. I want you to pay special attention to everything that's happening after this. We're going to have a very in-depth conversation. And that's how I kind of disengage them from the fears and open them up to be able to just learn the entire time 
And I'll do certain things to help them get involved because sometimes people just really want to do something. As simple as, hey, can you get me a flush? And how? And I won't ask them for two or three flushes at a time. I'll ask them for an individual flush every time I need one because that way they're consistently going back and forth to get that item. And they're like, oh my God, I'm being, I'm being involved. Or simple as I may prep an epi myself and then have them prep the next one. So it's certain things I try to do to disengage them from the overall responsibilities while letting them watch everything. And so I can notice based off their, their body language, there are certain learners that want to be involved right now. And there are certain tasks that is, you, you're allowed to do. Warm blanket. <laughs> These things are, that can engage our learners while ha- having them learn. So those are some key things, how I disengage them initially, to let them know, hey, I don't want you to do anything outside of just learning. And then be, throw them a few bones here and there so that we can kind of have a conversation later on. I'm, I'm almost thinking it's like I'm, I'm hearing like muscle memory where like it's like the repetition over and over again. It's like syringe, syringe, syringe. And then like over time, they like automatically know where the syringe is. And the next step, prepare, prepare, prepare. And then they know to prepare in those chronological steps. I mean, it, it, it's such a, a, a great idea and um, perspective here. Jimmy, what do you do to like work with? Um, your residents and, and learners to get from that like modeling, uh, modeling direct education stage up to like coaching and facilitating. How do you how do you gauge that like this person's ready to go? I think that they're um, like ready for the next step. Or do you just kind of like pull the rug out and say, okay, you're doing this next one? Now I'm going to say in, in traditional work work, work volumes and, and severity again, the COVID made things a little bit more unbearable to where we had to divide and conquer early on. But what I like to do is, especially right after I get done modeling these behaviors, I have very in-depth conversations and and simulations where I say, okay, we did this particular case, but what if this happened? And I ask them certain questions about that. And if they're able to kind of engage with me and follow the thought pattern, and I would challenge them, I say, oh, you want to use Rocky Ronian for this patient? Why? And challenge them to say, okay, be able to explain their thought process if they can explain the thought process to me and, and they're able to able to find the things that I know that they need to be very effective in these resuscitations, then I will say, okay, I'm going to be your runner. And I switch positions with them. So initially, once they're able to show me that they understand the thought process that's needed, I switch places and I tell them, okay, I want you to think out loud. And for the most part, what I'm able to do is the prior is what really helps me. So we usually get an EMS report prior to the patient getting there, and I say, okay, rapid fire, what's your thought process? What do you want to get? What are the things that, you know, you think you need for this case? And I always use the phrase, what medications will you need for the next 15 minutes? Now, like, what? I said, based on every scenario that you can possibly come up with or the ones that you know I'm going to quiz you on, what medications will you need? And based off that conversation prior to the patient getting there, that shows me the level of involvement that I would need to have in that case. And there's always a thought process that I'm, I'm going to take over if things get too rough, but that's my initial gauge to figure out whether or not they're ready to ride solo. And I can, tra- I can transform my role to be more of a coach and take on other roles as part of the resuscitation team. And Jimmy, it seems like in this methodology that, you know, not every resident student learner is going to get through that same trajectory. Um, I guess, how do you deem success in something where, you know, maybe a resident doesn't or, or learner doesn't progress up to being to the level of that final stage of facilitation of an of a of the precepting model. 
Um, do you can can you still like find success in those residents? And and what is it okay that you have different levels of of experiences for the different levels of learners. Absolutely. And I think the, the biggest thing I would like to, to say for those those learners that are not able to actually do it, um, a lot of it is just, are they able to talk through certain things? So I've had, I've had students particularly that they were not able to get involved. They were not able to draw the medications up. They were not able to label and those things. They, it was, they were just too overwhelmed. But after resuscitation, I was able to talk them to certain aspects of the case. And that's how I was able to say, well, they understood the pharmacotherapy plan. They understood why we did certain things because there's a certain moments where you don't have enough volume to be able to show them and get them involved. And they're not ready for it when it actually comes. So there are certain ones that I, I just, I know are not ready for that. And how I try to change that up is where I get them more involved in I like to call them subacute emergencies where you have certain traumas that are not very involved. These are the patients that will get some fentanyl, a tetanus shot, and maybe some antibiotics, but they're not very involved. And what I like to do is get them directly into those cases. And that's where, again, those patients that don't progress, that's what I like to do. When you're done with these and you do that like in-depth discussion with your residents, do you do any other clinical debriefs with team members, with uh, your um, learners, et cetera, or is it just that piece with the learners? And yeah, I've been fortunate. So at MUSC, in the last case that I had, it was actually a trauma. We have a pretty big team as, as most people do. And usually after the case, what usually happens is an impromptu where after the case, I'm debriefing with my residents and I usually catch the other interns and in lower level uh, physicians that are part of the trauma team looking over. And what I like to do is like to inter introduce them into the case as well. Hey, what's your thoughts on this? Or I may start asking them certain questions that I know that is directly related to their care. Hey, why'd you order a CT admin and pelvis? Uh, why'd you order certain things and ask them certain questions and get them involved into the case? And then that way, everyone can be part of the learning process. And in, in, in a more formal setting for post-resuscitation in a cardiac arrest, I'm usually the one who asks for a, a debrief very quickly. And I'll, what I try to do is I start off hey, this is what went well. These are some different things that happened. Um, what else What else can we do? So that's been the, the biggest case where I try to involve other people and not make it just me. But I would say on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm definitely debriefing in a more detailed way with my learners. And depending on the type of case, I would like to have involve others, other specialties in, in, the, in, in the care. Uh, Jimmy, uh, I think... Um, I love that idea of like collaborating in a multidisciplinary way. It's a great way of modeling a great interdisciplinary, um, you know, service with your, your learners. One of the things that comes to mind, and this is a bit tangential, um, so bear with me, but as you're having these like really challenging in-depth conversations about like, well, what if this happens and what if this happens and what if this happens? Uh, I, I can just envision myself as a learner being like, why is this dude asking me so many questions? Like, is he just trying to make me look stupid? So how do you avoid that? How do you like strike that balance to like not do like a classic, like, right, like pimp the student or the learner? Like, how do you strike that balance? That's the challenge. And I think one of the things that I've been, been fortunate with over a period of time is that people usually know me prior to taking my rotation and they, they, they've heard me and they, they know of these scenarios. And I try to make it very engaging and be more personable. 
where it's not a, a very serious conversation. A lot of the times when I'm teaching, I'm smiling. I try to make all of my nonverbal communication very positive and open. And I say, hey, this is just your thought processing. I just want to get this. This is going to make you great. And I try to do a lot of positive feedback when they're doing well. And I make sure I minimize the degree of negativity. Instead of saying you're wrong, like that, that's, not, that's probably not the best one. I don't know. What do you think your nursing staff will think about that? What do you think the other team's going to think about that? Those are different ways I try to minimize the the, the negative com- com- complexion of it because I realized that there's a fine line that you play, <laughs> and the medical residents are always there, especially the surgeons. Like, oh, he's gonna you gotta watch out, Jimmy's gonna pimp you. <laughs> Jimmy's coming. Jimmy's coming uh, for you, baby. It's funny. He's like, why do you know stuff about CTs and X-rays and stuff? I'm like. Someone's asked me these questions. Your attendings ask these questions. I'm trying to help you not get pimped by them on rounds. So that's how I phrase it to the other medical residents. And it really just becomes a, a really cool environment and where I try to just be very popular and make it a, a joking um, a way, but just I want them to be curious. And I try to promote that same curiosity when I'm doing the, 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 the questioning. I'm saying, this is the question I'm asking myself. So I try to make it to where they're, they're aware of it and I try to make the interaction, the nonverbal communication, and even the way I phrase certain things from a verbal, very positive towards them to where I can make them think, hey, this is actually fun. This is, I'm, I'm curious now. I love that, Jimmy. I think the curiosity is like one of the great ways to like disarm that like gut reaction of like someone's, someone's trying to make me look dumb. So I, I really appreciate that. Dave, you were going to say something? Is, yeah, this is bringing back like, I don't know, you know, back when I was my first week as a, as a PGY2, my aunt pharmacist shared a, uh, an office with our ICU pharmacist. And he had like this article, like laminated up on his wall and it was called the art of pimping. Mm-hmm. And like, as, as you, uh, as you went through this, you know, you, re- you really hear the, the, the truth to that, right. The, the art of doing like, you know, not overly burdening somebody, but get them, get them on track to, you know, to be able to think ahead. Right. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit down, but um, I want to, I want to get to another I don't know, topic that can kind of relate to this in the, in the field of medical emergencies and, and really that m- sometimes medical emergencies, unfortunately, end in negative clinical outcomes, whether that be a, a patient fatality, whether that be a failed resuscitation, um, a number of different negative outcomes that unfortunately you're going to see in clinical practice. And unfortunately, in the emergency department, you are going to see. So I guess um, I, I want to start by, by opening up openly and saying how you manage these failed interactions, failed challenging situations, um, and any miscommunication that, that can come with them. Yeah, it's definitely tough. And I, I would say that it's, it's definitely uh, an art and something that I've tried to learn over, over the years. And a lot of it actually starts intra-resuscitation because we're fortunate now to after so so long, 10, 15 minutes into the, the resuscitation, most of us have a good sense of how this is going to end. Um, again, you have some surprises, but for the most part, the information that you've gathered and the scenarios that you've played in your mind, one of the scenarios I always say is going to be that we, we fail. And I tried to, depending on the learner, where they are in their career, I'm very, very cautious when it comes to students. Um, one of my, my emergency medicine elective, I bring, I bring five students every Friday with me to shadow in the ER. And last week I had a case where we were there and we had an intubation and I said, Hey, 
part of my my thought process that one of the scenarios is that this patient can go into cardiac arrest. And we just talked to her family members and they said one round of CPR. So she has a very high likelihood potentially of not, you know, making it back. So through that process, I positioned my students at that point towards the door. And I said, as this go on, I don't want you to ask me if it becomes too much at any point. I want you to step out. Not this is not part of your grade. This is not part of anything I want you to do. Some, it's not important. It's not important to me that you, you learn this right now. But do you think that that is a necessary need in a emergency department rotation that students or learners need to have that experience? I think so. I'm fortunate to say that not the fir- it doesn't need to happen the first time every time. So I, I know that my, my students are going to be in the ER three or four times. So from there, I say, okay, the first time, this is what we're going to be expected to see. I let them know, hey, this patient may die. I'm going to be very honest with you. I want to make sure that you have that in your mindset before we walk into this room. Are you okay with that? Or do you want, you want to hang out right now? And as we, as you progress through the rotation, as you progress through the time, then you can start having conversations about how to deal with it. But I think initially I tried to position the students and let them know through the phase of the resuscitation, how we're going, things are may not be going well. If you want to step out, this is okay. And then once we go through the process, I have a student for, for weeks and I say, Hey, and this is what's going on. Let's debrief the same exact way. What could we have done better? What could we have done differently? But now let's transition to the emotional side of this because I believe that's a, a big part. And last week I got my students, we put them in the room and said, hey, this is how I deal with tough cases. Usually it, it involves something personal to me. So whether it's someone like a child or it's someone who looks like a family member, I, I call I say, I've, I've cried on shift multiple times. I've, I have felt these things and I let those things out immediately. And I talk to people who know what I go through. If you let them know, hey, I've cried. I've, I call people. I have tough shifts. I have to walk out for a second. Then it makes it to where they're okay. <laughs> they're okay when they have to do it. So I try to you know, put this into phases because I believe that <clears throat> the first time is maybe doesn't need to be the first time you see everything. But after a while, I try to transition them all the way through it and then even checking up on residents and learners after, days after when they have a tough case. Mass casualties are a big one. Um, very challenging cases involving OB, all these things where I may check in and say, hey, how you, how you, how you doing? Want to talk about it once more or not? And I just leave that door open. So it sounds it's, like it's, so it almost sounds like it's like the surprise effect yeah. of, saying that like you know if a if a learner is not prepared i mean i i'm, I'm going to parallel this to my oncology practice because i'm not emergency department trained but like when i had students learners etc you know and you had a newly diagnosed patient with a with a metastatic cancer and, and a student goes in there you have to have the expectation that 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 patient family member etc may have some, some very hard emotions in that conversation and it may bring up but I, I found preparing students for these conversations, preparing residents for what could happen in these scenarios was, was really effective at, at having them deal with these mixed emotions that come up in clinical practice. Can I just say, Jimmy, as, as someone who has like a unfortunately trauma-filled background um, with like my own kind of challenges and struggles as a, a person, um, I I am incredibly appreciative of you taking the time to like 
explicitly tell people like your grade is not attached to your reaction and how you manage these things. Your social and emotional intelligence is something that will build over time and not something like day one. I'm just going to like dump you in on like a, you know, uh, postpartum case, right? Like I think about like my first, literally it was my first week back from uh, paternity leave with my first child. We'd already had multiple miscarriages at that point. And I had an OB case in the OR plan C-section was not going well, not looking well. There was no backup. There was no one around. I had two learners and it's like me trying to figure out like, what am I going to do about like myself as a person as like, I'm literally watching this person that could have been my wife like three weeks ago. It's like, we all struggle with it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a brand new student and you've not experienced it. If you're a practitioner that's been doing this for 15, 20 years, like there are cases that will get to you and, and make it really challenging. So I, I applaud you for um, like sharing that piece of advice for people. Um, because I think we all have this idea that like, well, you're in, you're in medicine, you need to have like a stiff upper lip and like, you just got to keep going. Like, no, sometimes you don't, maybe you need to like call someone, find help. And, and I really love that idea with connecting with that family member that like maybe brought that up for you. That that's some, uh, really great advice. And I just want to like hone in on that as like the emotional intelligence piece. So thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. It's, it's tough. And I think the more again we're in these in these states, and I think we're we're fortunate to be experienced with these things and see it so often that we know that at the end of the day, none of this stuff matters. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these, you know, I, I like to say pharmacy is very concerned with surrogate markers of professionalism, and this is some. These are one of the things that I, I've heard people say before. Oh, I had my student cry on me. I had my my resident cry on me because of blah blah blah. And it's like, yeah, man, but that doesn't matter. Again, I've I've done some some things that I really appreciate, and I've also cried on shifts. So that to me doesn't make it any better or worse, and it really doesn't. It, it, our students and learners should know that they should they're not going to be impacted by that. And any preceptors out there that are you know judging their students or learners based on their reaction to something, and they're literally two one to two years into their career, you know I, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I hear you taking a slight twist into the positive direction. Uh, when you have like a, uh, I think of like about myself as like a PGY2 critical care resident that did some time in the ED. Like when you have a case that just everything works out perfect, you like sedation is spot on, RSI is spot on, you get pressure started. Like all of a sudden they start looking like way better. They pink up, they look great. Like how do you like manage the emotions of like that extreme success and then like pivot that to like, maybe additional learning opportunities or like, what do you do to like temper that resident from that walks out of that like case and is like, boom, I nailed that. Don't talk to me. I got this. I'm out. Absolutely. Man. Those are, I think those are the hardest cases to learn from. Um, I actually, cause again, with my, my background in sports, when everything goes well, you don't practice those things that get you there, the, the, the fundamentals. And one of the things that makes it unique is during those moments where I celebrate the win very quickly. And that can be as something as, Hey, you did a phenomenal job on that. I'm buying dinner, but before I buy dinner, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's talk about what, what if, what if this would have happened? What if that would have happened? And then what I notice is that they go from like, ah, all right. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was, I was really happy about that, but I think we know, and especially in the ER and in the unit, 
you know, you can never celebrate too early. I've had cases where I thought we did a great job. We've got Ross, blood pressure's looking good, titrated off pressors, and then they go to the unit and code again and don't make it. So I think it's more of a, a standpoint of, okay, what are the next steps? And I keep, I keep reminding my resident, my learners, what's the next medication? What's the next step? You know, what's the, what if this happens? So if we get a great patient, we resuscitate them, we get sedation on board. Okay, if the patient becomes hypotensive and agitated, now what? If the patient becomes uh, hypertensive and agitated, now what? And try to make it to where you have a, you keep a plan going and you try to transition that to additional learning. And what I like to do is I like to ask certain questions that I know they probably haven't progressed to yet and make it to where they can have some more questions to go home with. You know, I make all my learners have an um, a Excel sheet with DI questions for every rotation to where I say, okay, at the end of the week, give me your response to all the questions I ask during the week. So one of the things that I do is that during certain moments where we're high-fiving, that's great. That's a phenomenal job. We're going to celebrate this. But there's something at part of this that we could have done better. So I talk about those parts of the, of the case. And there are some other aspects that we didn't get to yet. So I try to really dig deeper into that and then play, play the devil's advocate. What if what if this happens? Then what if that happened? And it's continuously changing the scenario. And I, I think I've fallen in love with simulations and just a thought process with that. And you can continuously change the scenario and get additional learning aspects out of one case. I love that. It's like you've, um, to bring it back to sports, it's like you've taken the Tom Brady method and brought it to healthcare, right? Which is like... Oh, I don't use Tom Brady. <laughs> you can like never be Gosh. perfect, right? Like there, there's no such thing as perfect. There's only like striving for perfection and like you'll always be moving there. So that's... Yeah, sorry gonna, I brought up Tom Brady, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mix the, the two last thoughts together and get your perspective on this. So, in a case of a maybe a, a failed resuscitation where you're dealing with mixed emotions, I, I guess how do you bring up successful management of that case with a resident or learner that ultimately feels defeated because the outcome was negative, but the way they handled that situation might have been you know, pristine. It might have been like everything they could have done. They they managed it well. They held themselves. They were resourceful. I guess how do you how do you overcome that and, and work that balance into a into a negative outcome case? I think what I've what I've learned through that timing is gonna be everything and reading your residents and where they are emotionally at that time. So there's there's sometimes why I would say after a tough resuscitation, hey take fifteen. Take 10, 15, 30 minutes, go eat, go do different things and just detach from the situation for a second. And kind of get along with those, get away from the environment, get away from the stimuli. We're fortunate to so our resident office is like a, very far from the ED. I make them go elsewhere for a second and give them time to like be okay. And once we come back, then I can start engaging into the, the, the processes that was actually pretty good about that. Because usually, again, the, the great thing about the ER and, this, and the acute care in general, there's times where it's like, hey, we tried. We did, we did all the things. We did these things well. And usually during that time frame, when they're away, I can get gather um, feedback from the team. And one thing that I noticed is that all of the residents love getting appreciation from other specialties. When the nurse say, hey, they, you did a phenomenal job getting those, getting those drugs set. When the, when the physician tells them, hey, I could, we couldn't have done anything with you without, without you being there. Those things really prep them up. And then once I kind of beef up their spirits with the things that we did well, and then we can start getting to more. It's all I, I hate to make it this way, but it's all about the case, the case. What was the actual case? What did we do? Did we do those things correctly? And for next time, 
what what else can we do better? You know, how can we modify? But I think taking some time away from the, the from that scenario, getting away from that environment, beefing them up with some positive feedback. If they did well, um, I'm I'm not a fan of always giving great feedback. If you if you if you are horrible and I had to step in and take over the case, but I think they did well. They tried their or they tried their best from what the skill set that they have. It's always a way to say, hey, this is what you've done well. You've learned this particular skill set. You you made the right decisions based off what you know. And I can't ask I can't ask any more from you from that standpoint. But this is some different ways from to learn and ask their opinion. How do you think the case went? How do you think all the, the different the different specialties performed? And really just try to, to make it to where I try to not make it personal if I can. Um but at the same time, it's like giving them the positive feedback and asking them what how what, what is the learning process from this case and, and try to move on from that and get their get their, their mindsets on. It's tough. <laughs> if it was easy, everyone would do it, Jimmy. Jimmy, any uh, any suggestions for new practitioners, maybe in a variety of settings, say like the floor, ICU, um, you know, that maybe don't run into medical emergencies all the time, but uh, do periodically and, and maybe need like to make split decisions, like any last minute tips or advice for, for those um, situations outside the ED? I think one of the biggest thing I would take from this, and I guess the model that I, I keep you know preaching about thinking out loud, it's okay to tell, tell your learner to sit there, watch everything, and we're going to discuss things afterwards. And, and you can discuss things when you're ready as a new practitioner, because sometimes a new practitioner, you're very unsure of what you're doing. Sometimes you're unsure of how to how to you know discuss these things. It's OK to take a moment, take care of your task and then later on a different time, then discuss these things with, uh, with the resident or learner. And then also, I think one of the biggest things that I, I, I struggled with initially was not knowing the answers to the questions initially. And that being okay. And for me, I, my students and, and residents told me they respect me because if I didn't know, I would tell them I didn't know. And then I would go find the answer. I wouldn't go send them to get the answer. Sometimes I would go myself and find and find the answer. And then we'll talk about that as well, because I think there's a, a group of people out there who they don't know. They play the game where you should know that uh, you should just get back to me, you know, next day while they look it up and find the answer. But I think <laughs> you're saying that you don't know. And that's yeah. the easy way. Yeah. That's Fake the it till you make it. It's like, yeah. Just figure this out a this is a recurring theme, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're our second guest that has said the same thing. And, and I think, yeah, having that vulnerability to tell someone like, I don't know. And then what you do to like make uh, like rectify that situation is really important. It's modeling vulnerability. It's modeling like understanding that you're never going to be 100 percent like confident in every answer that you have because it's not and possible. It, and it teaches your learner to say like it's OK to say I don't know. Right. Like when they're the preceptor in like a year or two down the line and it teaches them that it's OK to not know the answer to everything. And it teaches this this fake it till you make it method, which which isn't isn't, you know, it's not great for precepting. Absolutely. Not. I've actually went to the point to where even if they're not there, if I make a wrong recommendation or if I have a if, if I look at a case incorrectly, I will bring it to their attention. Because what happens is it what it really does is it allows them to say, well, if he brings this up to me then it's okay. And when I'm questioning them, they notice it's okay for them not to know as well, just in those moments. So I think it's made it to where it's a a better environment to where if I don't know something and I bring that up, if I made a mistake and I bring that up and I show them the steps that I've done to go about uh, 
uh, rectifying that answer. It helps them build skill sets to understand how to problem solve, but it also opens up that vulnerability to where when I'm asking a lot of questions or I'm doing my teaching out loud thing, it's okay. They don't feel like I'm pimping them as much and it, it builds a better relationship. So, so true, Jimmy. Um, as, as we wrap up on time, um, you know, I, I wanted to thank you, Jimmy, for, for being part of this discussion. Um, one thing we, we really like to gauge every guest we bring on this podcast uh, is what is one thing you took from a past preceptor or mentor and is, is involve that in your current practice today? I think uh, the biggest thing, and Jim Priano out of Avid Health, he, he really did a good job of producing the type of preceptor I am today. He would just always say question everything. Uh, it's something very simple, but I think it's not just a, a term more so than it is a particular a lifestyle as a, as, a, as a learner. And I think when he says question everything, it's like question me, uh, question the literature. And if you take a different approach where you say, I wonder why he's always said, huh, that's interesting. I, I wonder what you look into that. And he would just show me just question all these different things. And what it did was it made me understand that. Initially, you learn in a black and white fashion in a completely gray world. And once I understood that curiosity can help you navigate the gray better and question things, it really led to a much higher job satisfaction. And really just me, I like to say that I'm just in love with, with emergency medicine and just pharmacy in general. And that's the one thing that I've, I've took from, from Jim Priano, just questioning everything and, and displaying that that same enthusiasm to question everything. I can definitively say, Jimmy, you are uh, like the model person for always looking to learn and educate. I mean, you you do it in your spare time, you do it at work, you do it uh, in your your second job. <laughs> um, so um, strong work there, bud. I, I appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to pop in to say thanks, Jimmy, uh, for doing this. Uh, you know, we've gotten to work on a few things uh, prior to this. And um, anytime I get a chance to pick your brain about uh, any topic has always been illuminating. And and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, I thank you guys. Thank all the listeners for, for, for listening to me talk for the last few minutes. And just thankful for the opportunity. I'm really happy with the work you guys are doing because this was a, a space that was really need it in a, in a more casual way. And I think most people who want to do preceptive development, they've gotten a little overwhelmed with the, I like to say the dryness and I'm, I'm just being you know honest how dry a lot of the information is, but you guys have done something really special and being able to get the key concepts, get the key topics and talk about it in a way that preceptors get. So I don't want to underemphasize the work that you guys are doing and how big this is going to be. Uh, for now and for the, for the years to come. So great work for you guys. Again, everything you guys asked me to do, I'm going to going to do because I just really appreciate when other people are passionate about a certain thing and precepting and teaching is, you know, something that I, I live by. I really appreciate that, Jimmy. I'm blushing. <laughs> I don't know if it's that or, 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 my, or my afternoon drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but listeners. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, stay tuned for uh, Spencer Sutton's uh, summary on what he took away from today's episode. Welcome to a responsible review where I, Spencer, the producer of Precept Responsibly, go over some of the major learning elements for young and new preceptors. 
Uh, today we discussed with Dr. Pruitt uh, precepting in medical emergencies and many incredible takeaways here. Uh, I'd like to start with that David Hughes drinks liquor like he's still in college. Uh, Diet Mountain Dew and vodka should be illegal. Moving on, uh, teaching out loud is really the first concept that was brought up by Dr. Pruitt. Uh, this allows the opportunity to describe what you're doing, building confidence with the primary team, as well as providing direct education to your learners. The learners are going to be able to see what you're doing, identify your thought processes, and begin to model those. Dr. Pruitt spent a lot of time on uh, setting expectations, which is important. Uh, not only just expectations of what your responsibilities are going to be, but understanding what your role is as a learner in the medical emergencies. Uh, it can be scary being a new learner in an emergency care system and feeling like all eyes are on you. So it's important to take the opportunity to disengage the expectations away from the learners and put them on the preceptors. You can provide easy, di uh, directed, and targeted activities for the learners to focus on, allowing them to feel as though they're getting involved in the case. Additionally, it can be a challenge to identify when a learner is ready to join in on a case. So body language is important. Uh, you can begin to move from more of a modeling to facilitation role by using cases as a case. Uh, pose the questions to your learners. Allow yourself the opportunity to identify what they understand. Are they able to go to those next steps? And you'll be able to assess if your patients are ready to move into more of an independent role while you serve as a runner or a facilitator. In medical emergencies, it is very possible that uh, bad outcomes can happen. It's important that you ex uh, set these expectations with the learner that it is very possible that a patient might pass during the case. Um, make sure that they know where the doors are. Make sure that they feel supported and acknowledged that their grade is not based on their ability to manage an incredibly challenging situation that you know tenured practitioners still go through. Uh, and with that, over time, you can work to support them in developing their own uh, management and emotional well-being skills uh, and advocating for their ability to move into that independent role. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thank you all for listening. I have been Spencer Sutton, and I look forward to talking with you all next time. Thank you. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone, send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. Like I made my wife listen to the podcast and she said Jason's a way better host than me. So oh ouch. It's a dude. Brutal honesty you gotta look Seriously. for. Me.